and also in modern liberty, it, it might be tempting to see sections one and thirty-three as as an intellectual compromise on um, on a state that's committed to protecting individual rights. Um, but but I I don't see it that way. I think that um, there is no unbounded liberty and there is no sort of freedom in the state of nature, and it is the the role of the legislature to specify limits of right. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast is Stephen Armstrong. Stephen is a former Supreme Court of Canada clerk and the past president of the Runnymede Society's Toronto Lawyer Chapter, who's pursuing a career in international arbitration. In today's episode, Stephen and I sit down to discuss his recent article in Runnymede's Dicey Law Review on Henry VIII clauses and why, contrary to the orthodox point of view, he considers such provisions to be unconstitutional. Stephen, welcome to Runnymede Radio. Thank you for having me. So you're someone who many of our listeners will be familiar with. You've been involved in the Runnymede Society for quite some time. Uh, You were involved with the chapter at the University of Calgary back when you were a student there. And then after that, uh, after your graduation, you clerked at the, uh, I believe at the Court of King's Bench, if that's right, in Alberta. And then of course, at the Supreme Court of Canada for Justice Susan Cote. And then you were a lawyer uh, with Osler in Toronto for a time before you served as counsel with the Public Order Emergencies Commission late last year and into this year. But you're now beginning uh, a new chapter of your career. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I'm in the process of uh, moving to Paris, France, and I'm, I'm going to be working... Not uh, Ontario. In, that's right, not Paris, Ontario. And I'll be working uh, in international arbitration uh, with three crowns. Excellent. Well, we look forward to, uh, to seeing how that goes. And obviously, we, we wish you all the best. That's an exciting career move. And, and no doubt, we'll look for opportunities to uh, keep you uh, coming back and, and speaking at running meet events when you're able. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's really exciting uh, for me because I get to practice public international law, which I've always wanted to do. So it's, a, it's an exciting new chapter. Excellent, for sure. Well, one of the things that we want to talk about today is an issue that is a little near and dear to your heart, a little bit of a passion project, which is uh, Henry VIII clauses, which have become something of uh, of a relevant topic again within the last uh, few months. And this is something that you've written about for the Runnymede Society's annual journal, the Dicey Law Review. But I think it's fair to say that it's it's a topic that's not often addressed in law school classrooms and, and quite rarely... Would it be something that comes up in a courtroom as well? So to start, can you give our listeners a brief overview of what Henry VIII clauses are and how they work? Yeah, for sure. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, a preliminary issue of terminology. So I, I like to use the word uh, or the phrase primary legislation um, as opposed to subordinate legislation. So I think I'm going to be using those phrases quite a bit in our talk today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and primary legislation, when I say that, it refers to statutes enacted by a legislature or by the Parliament of Canada. And subordinate mm-hmm. legislation refers to uh, regulations, orders in council, rules enacted pursuant to a delegated grant of authority. And so the general rule, the general distinction here is that um, subordinate legislation 
uh, is trumped by primary legislation. So if you have a conflict between the two, the primary legislation is supposed to win out. Secondary or subordinate legislation doesn't overrule primary legislation. That's the that's the ordinary rule uh, in administrative right. law. This is administrative law 101, basically. Yeah. And so Henry VIII clauses defy that sort of standard rule, basically. And so what Henry VIII clauses are is they are statutory provisions found in primary legislation that authorize uh, the executive or an administrative body to amend or repeal primary legislation through the use of subordinate legislation. So you can see that they they sort of upend the natural order of things. Definitely. Can you then explain, so this is typically a topic that comes up, as we were just saying, in administrative law, the relationship between primary and subordinate legislation. But regarding the constitutionality of yep. Henry VIII clauses, can you describe what the orthodox position would be in Canada regarding their constitutionality? Yeah, and so just just to build up to it, so there's there's a bit of a history that goes along with Henry VIII clauses um, that I think will make some sense. So um, the first documented use of a Henry VIII clause uh, was comes from the United Kingdom in 1888 in the Local Government Act. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the first one that you generally see spoken of in the literature. Um, and in Canada, the first uh, the first one that I'm aware of, at least the first constitutional test of Henry VIII clause, was um, in a case called Re Gray and decided in 1918 by the Supreme Court of Canada. And and what the Supreme Court of Canada said basically is that. The Parliament of Canada's authority to delegate is as wide as the UK Parliament. Therefore, the Parliament of Canada can enact a Henry VIII clause. Um, there's a lot of history that goes into that case, though. Uh, it was um, in the backdrop of World War One, and what had happened was at the outbreak of the war, Parliament had enacted the War Measures Act, which basically gave cabinet the power to enact orders in council on any subject matter within the jurisdiction of the federal government. But crucially, it also gave cabinet the authority to amend or repeal primary legislation. And that's what made it a Henry VIII clause. Um, and basically, by 1917, the need for troops at the front had uh, grown immensely as the war took its toll and parliament enacted uh, a military service act, which is basically cons conscription. And there were classes of exemption um, basically for, you know, children of farmers and stuff like that. So they wouldn't have to be conscripted, but 1918 rolls around and yet more troops are needed at the front. And so the cabinet enacted an order in council under the war measures act, which repealed the exemptions in the military service act and so this was challenged this is what was the, the validity of that order in council was what was before the court in re gray and a majority of the court a 4-2 majority uh upheld the validity of the order in council but crucially 
there was a dissent, and so it was a divided uh, court on the issue. And that was that was really the leading case for a long time. And then it was uh, the issue was brought up again just recently in the carbon tax reference. And you know the carbon tax reference was obviously a provincial challenge to the validity of the federal uh, carbon pricing scheme. So it was mostly a federalism issue, but the pri- carbon pricing scheme also included Henry VIII clauses. And so the validity of Henry VIII clauses uh, became a topic of discussion uh, in, in the submissions and in the reasons. And uh, a majority of the court under Chief Justice Wagner reaffirmed, re-gray, and followed the standard position, which is nothing to see here. Henry VIII clauses are constitutional. It was decided in 1918. We're not revisiting the issue. Justice Cote, however, um, authored a dissent where she really honed in on this issue of, of delegation and of Henry VIII clauses. And she would have found, she, she took a categorical position, basically, that Henry VIII clauses are unconstitutional. And so that takes us, that's the case law. Mm-hmm. It's been covered as well um, to a certain degree in recent uh, scholarly articles, uh, particularly uh, James Johnson in the UBC Law Review, Lauren Newdorf in the Dalhousie Law Journal, and Mark Mancini in the Saskatchewan Law Review have written articles recently on the topic as well. Um, mixed, mixed treatment, for sure. Uh, I don't think anybody is prepared to say that Henry VIII clauses are great and wonderful things. Um, mm. And so there's certainly scholarly criticism, but uh, certainly mixed treatment in terms of their constitutional validity. We're, we're, we're talking here about, you know, primarily the modern use of uh, Henry VIII clauses, right? And you, you talk about the 1918 decision and Gray, and you talk about how Henry VIII clauses uh you know, kind of their uh, emergence we can see in in late 19th century uh, British law. But obviously the idea at the core of Henry VIII clauses, where you basically have executive authority within a parliamentary system circumventing uh, legislative authority when it comes to the ability to uh, amend or repeal legislation, uh, this isn't a new phenomenon because you know we the, the, we see that in the name itself, right? Uh, they are uh, named after uh, mm. Henry VIII, the the sixteenth century monarch. Can you just give us like a, a just before we dive into the the modern discussion? And I want to turn to Justice Cote's dissent from the carbon tax reference in a moment. Can you just give us a little bit of that that wide angle lens background uh, of how this sort of um, idea of of the executive circumventing parliamentary authority arose yeah so so henry the eighth clauses are named after henry the eighth an, an english monarch uh, an english tutor monarch and there there used to be on the statute books uh, if i recall correctly a statute that basically said that the king's the king's proclamations uh shall have the force of law basically and so Henry VIII was very fond of using this statute, and so he he would make proclamations, and then they would essentially have the force of law, even though Parliament hadn't sat and enacted a bill to the to the similar effect. And so that's, but also over time, 
um, in the English uh, parliamentary tradition as it grew throughout the Stuart uh, period, um, the English were very critical of this practice. And mm-hmm. so once Henry VIII clauses in their modern guise came around at the end of the 19th century, they were given this um, this name of, of a Henry VIII clause, a sort of a derisive derogatory name right. as, you know, oh, you've, you've, you're acting like you're Henry VIII. Um, so I, it, I don't think it's, it's a flattering name. No, and that's consistent with what you say about the modern scholarship, right? That this is something, um, the, the idea of Henry VIII clauses is not exactly something that most scholars are wild about, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they are a little bit more, um, you know, temperate about their constitutionality, it, it, it does seem to be an idea that uh, some people uh, or, or even uh, most scholars are perhaps have certain reservations about. So why don't we turn, though, to your argument, which is the one that you presented in the second volume of the Dicey Law Review last year uh, regarding the constitutionality of these uh, clauses, because you argue that they are unconstitutional on both a purposive and a historically conscious reading of the Constitution Act 1867. So what are some of the provisions from the 1867 Act that you see as precluding uh, reliance on Henry VIII clauses? Yeah. So, and and your question um, sort of implies a methodology. And so just very briefly, I think the Supreme Court has been clear that the starting point, the jumping off point, in constitutional interpretation is the text of the constitution because the, mm-hmm. the main task here is that we're trying to give meaning to text and so to your question we have to open up the constitution act 1867 and look at what the provisions say and if you do that uh you'll see that part three the constitution act is divided into parts part three defines the executive power part four defines the legislative power and part seven defines the judicial power. And so mm-hmm. what we see here in the text of the Constitution is a written separation of powers. At least that's that's what I would contend. And so, like I said, the executive power is in part three. And so if you look at sections 9, 10, 11, 12, they provide that executive power in Canada is vested in the Queen represented by the governor general and the governor general is aided and advised by the queen's privy council for canada and and mm-hmm. just to be clear that's that's not the judicial committee of the privy council that you know some students would see in their textbooks that's basically cabinet and some civil, senior civil servants yep. um, and then if you go to section 17 uh, we see that the legislative power is defined uh, for the for the federal government, and the legislative power consists of three constituent elements: the House of Commons, the Senate, and the Queen. And so we see that there's an executive power and a legislative power. They're treated separately in the text, and they have different constituent elements. The executive mm-hmm. consists of the Crown, the Crown's representative, and the Crown's ministers in the Privy Council. The legislature consists of the Crown, the House of Commons, and the Senate. And then in section 91, we see something that I think is very peculiar and very interesting. And so many listeners will know that section 91 lists 
the areas of federal legislative competence. That's that's something everybody knows and learns. It's probably the first thing you think when you think of Section 91. And yes. without looking at it, you might expect the text of Section 91 to say that the Parliament of Canada may exclusively make laws for the peace order and good government of Canada and blah, 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 blah. Or if we're skeptical about the existence of a separation of powers, we might expect it to say the crown and right of Canada may exclusively make laws. Or if the constitution, um, you know, if, if the role of parliament is just to make policy choices, we might expect section 91 to say it shall be lawful for parliament to make policies about these subjects. But no, that's not what the constitution says in section 91. What it right. says is it shall be lawful for the queen by and with the advice and consent of the Senate and House of Commons to make laws for the peace, order, and good government of Canada. And so I say that to make laws means to make primary legislation. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't say the Privy Council can make laws. It doesn't say cabinet can make laws. It doesn't say the judiciary can make laws. It says... The Queen, the Senate, the House of Commons can make laws. And so I say that that is a specific formula for the enactment, amendment, and repeal of primary legislation set out in our Constitution. And really what you're getting at here are just basic principles of, of textual statutory interpretation, right? This idea that the expression or the inclusion of one thing implies the exclusion of another. Yeah, that's right. And but of course you don't stop there. We know that. You don't just stop with the text. No one no one thinks that that is a comprehensive uh methodology of interpretation. And I think one important, one important point to add here is that but by 1867 when the constitution is enacted, there is already a very well-established uh historical practice and precedent for the inclusion of delegations of subordinate lawmaking authority in primary legislation. It's a well-established practice. You can enact a statute that says, you know, the local magistrate will enact rules or the governor and council will enact regulations or orders in council. That's very common yeah. by 1867. And that is, uh, that's pointed out in the leading case on delegation in the Privy Council, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, called Hodge and the Queen, decided in 1883. And they actually adopt a very helpful set of reasons from the Ontario Court of Appeal on the history of subordinate legislation. You can find the citations for that in my, in my paper. Um, but so what we're getting after here, basically, is that as an incident of making laws, as, as an ancillary power to making laws, Parliament can delegate subordinate lawmaking authority. But it's Parliament, it's the Queen, the Senate, and the House of Commons that is assigned the authority to enact, amend, and repeal primary legislation. That's the distinction right. that I'm trying to hang my hat on. And your argument here uh, that you that you present in the Dicey Law Re Review, you're building off of, um, as you alluded earlier, Justice Cote's reasons uh, from the carbon tax reference.
Um, And and just for the sake of our listeners, so they know you obviously clerked for Justice Cote. You did not clerk for her during uh, the carbon tax reference. And so it's uh, there's nothing untoward here about you. You waiting in uh, after your clerkship uh, as a legal scholar on these issues. Um, You also argue, though, that the, the Constitution's scheme of mixed government generally, which is what we were just talking about in some respects, promotes liberty through a balanced separation of powers. And it's interesting because Justice Brown's uh, reasons in the carbon tax reference, uh, he ultimately does not decide on the constitutionality of Henry VIII clauses. He felt that he didn't need to given his other sets of reasons. Uh, But he does highlight the separation of power concerns that were raised by Justice Cote. And uh, interestingly, his keynote address earlier this year at Runnymede's annual Law and Freedom Conference uh, touched on this broader uh, topic. And this is something that he's been developing uh, through various talks uh, for some time now towards this Canadian conception of the separation of powers, as he calls it. So do you think that part of the reason that Henry VIII clauses have been held to be constitutional is because Canadian law has had a generally impoverished understanding of the separation of powers? Right. So first, I would say that uh, I was there for Justice Brown's speech, and it it was excellent. And I'd also like to add that um, his contributions uh, to Canadian scholarship and on the bench have been enormous and and certainly will be dearly missed. And I hope that uh, he's able to continue making contributions uh, in his retirement. And I'll also add that uh, I, as a law clerk, may have had a sneak preview on Justice Brown's thinking on this issue in a draft paper. And so he may have heavily influenced my own thinking on this topic. And so I will freely uh, give that attribution where it's certainly deserved. Um, But yes, so your question was about an impoverished um, sense of the separation of powers. I think that's right. Uh, but I think it's it's sort of a symptom of a larger problem, which is an impoverished um, sense of our historic the historical origins and developments of our fundamental institutions. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't see a lot of that in the law school curriculum, um, mm-hmm. and so it's sort of left to. Uh, I had the fortune of studying British constitutional history in my undergrad, and so I had a certain enthusiasm for it. Um, and I've spoken to lawyers in passing who will say, oh, we don't have a separation of powers because we have the Westminster system where mm-hmm. the government and the legislature are typically highly aligned. But I think that's an incomplete understanding of how our system works. And, and we don't even really need to get into the history books to debunk that idea. If we look at uh, the federal parliament since 2004, it's been characterized by minority parliaments, the government and the House of Commons are distinct. And if the government of the day in a minority parliament needs to get a measure passed, it has to secure the, the support of one of the opposition parties. And so right now, the government of the day has the support of of uh, one of the opposition parties through a confidence and supply agreement. And, and so that, that just highlights how the executive and the legislature are indeed very different. Uh, and that's not even mentioning the headaches that the Senate sometimes probably sometimes gives to the government of the day. Um, something I'll also say is that um, sometimes you see the argument, I think this is in Chief Justice's uh, reasons in the carbon tax reference, you, you'll see the argument made that the separation of powers is just 
a principle of judicial restraint, meaning that it, it, it just operates to restrain judicial decision making from stepping on the toes of the elected branches. But and I think that's a great principle, but I don't see anything in the text of the Constitution that would justify limiting the principle just to the judicial branch. We have a it's constitution- no less than that, but it's more than that. You're saying, yeah, we have well, we have a written constitution in Canada, and it spells out, at least at the federal level, in very clear terms, how the legislative branch is supposed to operate and how the executive branch is supposed to operate. And it actually says even less about the judicial branch. Um, right. So. In my view, I don't see how the principle can can just be left as a restraint on judicial decision making. It, it's an interesting. Uh, I, I I agree with your assessment on this, and it's definitely one that uh, last year I was uh, teaching an undergraduate course on law, and it was something that occasionally I would get into uh, debates with my uh, students about. Uh, you know, who most of whom were coming uh, through a political science uh, program, and so. Uh, had been taught that you know there is no separation of powers in Canada, and uh, and trying to explain to them no actually there there is and here are the, here are the reasons why could at times be a bit of a an uphill challenge. Um, do do you think though like just to drill down on this a little bit more, do you think that the focus that we tend to place in first year constitutional law curriculums on the charter is part of the reason uh, that we see this? Um, you know, this, this, you, you talk about the need for a more holistic institutional understanding of how our constitution works. And it strikes me that very often when we talk about the charter, do we tie it back to how the charter, uh, I think best understood supports the democratic institutions that were constituted back in 1867? I think that's an interesting point. I think that um, I, I best not weigh too heavily into my recommendations for law school curriculums because I, <laughs> I will certainly be out of my depth and I have no idea what I'm talking about in that sense. What I will say is that at the University of Calgary, I received uh, or I had the pleasure to listen to a wonderful, wonderful series of lectures from uh, Dean Ian Holloway. Uh, where he has maybe an hour or two the first week of law school, he would give a lecture on on each of the different foundational topics and, and how you know, so you know property law from medieval times onwards. You know, I don't know how fun that one was, but but the development of the English uh, Constitution that was a fascinating lecture, and I still remember it to this day. And I, I don't know what other law schools do, but if everyone could, uh, you know get one of those lectures from Dean Ian Holloway, I think that would be a great start. Well, I know our friend, uh, Professor Ryan Alford, would certainly be a proponent of reintroducing uh, legal history courses uh, as mandatory courses within law school curricula, uh, which uh, um, uh, Professor um, uh, uh, Phil Gerard has written a fascinating article about uh, who's afraid of Canadian legal history and just uh, the, the trend away uh, from uh, legal history and law school curricula, but let's bring this back um, to Henry VIII clauses and and your argument about their, uh, in your view, their unconstitutionality. And one of the arguments you make is that uh, the internal architecture or the basic constitutional structure of the 1867 Act is one that's modeled on conceptions of modern liberty. What do you mean by this phrase, modern liberty? 
Yeah, so I'm going to try and explain this concisely. Uh, modern liberty uh, and liberty more generally is a, sort of an intellectual, philosophical, and historical concept. And so what I'm going to talk about, it, it all comes out of the work of Professor Quentin Skinner on the genealogy of liberty. And, and I also rely very heavily on the work of Professor Michel Ducharme, uh, who patriated that work on the genealogy of liberty and applied it to the intellectual history of Canada. So I, I'm entirely indebted to uh, to their work, nothing original uh, coming out of my brain on this topic. But if we take the bare idea of liberty, we can divide it into at least two different branches. One is ancient liberty, the other is modern liberty. Mm-hmm. Ancient liberty is focused on uh, the freedom of the people as a people to participate in and control the political process. And so it's focused on ensuring that the conditions necessary to be a good citizen in a republic uh, are, are necessary, are, are, are present. People need to be free from domination in order to participate and, and to be good citizens. So there's an emphasis on positive rights or positive entitlements, privileges, and a greater emphasis on equality among citizens. Modern liberty is focused on the freedom of the individual. And and so the emphasis under modern liberty is on civil liberties, property rights, religious freedom, uh, the rule of law, and it's more about negative rights. And so this disagreement, uh, these sort of two different strands of thinking about liberty, um, they really came, I guess, to a head during the Enlightenment. And that's that's when the idea of modern liberty became very popular, became in vogue. It's sort of the Enlightenment idea of liberty. And so it, this led to serious uh, disagreements about the the proper uh, form of government uh, to ensure liberty, basically, depending on which camp you fall into. And so mm-hmm. theorists of ancient liberty located sovereignty in the legislature because p- the people, the quote-unquote people, are represented in the legislature, and therefore the legislature is sovereign because the people are sovereign and cannot be questioned. Theorists of modern liberty, however, were a little more agnostic about where sovereignty could be located. And so some of them aggrandized the executive branch. Alexander Hamilton comes to mind when, when I think of that. Um, but it's, it's even possible to have a state that protects modern liberty that isn't democratic at all. You, you could have an enlightened despot. Um, but but I think what was most popularly settled on for the most part for, for the proponents of modern liberty was sovereignty, yes, in a legislature, but a legislature that is constrained um, often by a written constitution, but also with mm-hmm. sort of internal constraints where there are different elements of society represented in the legislature. They're there to represent different interests. And so it's not intended, the legislature advocated by modern theorists of modern liberty is not intended to be um, wholly populist. The people are represented, but the other elements of society are also represented. And so what you get uh, in the UK is a legislature where you have king, lords, and commons. And in Canada, you get the king, senate, and commons. And so the senate in Canada represents regional differences instead of the aristocratic elements of the sort of medieval legacy from the uk there's one other point i wanted to make here is that 
yeah. it, it struck it strikes me that the sort of Dicean notion of parliamentary sovereignty that parliament can't be questioned and and parliament is omnipotent within its own domain it's always sort of struck me as more in line with the, the theorists of ancient liberty than modern liberty uh, mm-hmm. but that's it's just sort of an idea that I I haven't developed but it just it strikes me as sort of at odds with the idea of modern liberty, I guess. Well, it sounds like a potential uh, future contribution uh, article and, and one that I'm sure our, look, our, our readers would look forward to, uh, our listeners rather, would look forward to reading. Um, it's interesting, your, your discussion of modern liberty seems to, to me as well to have a direct bearing on how we understand the principle of constitutionalism insofar as constitutionalism uh, is about a specific articulation or specific application, perhaps more so of uh, of the rule of law, and uh, ensuring that that power is exercised uh, in accordance with the institutions and and structure that a, that a constitution uh, creates. So this is kind of circling back to some of the themes that that you explored earlier. And so so with that, I kind of want to ask. You know, I, I've already asked kind of one question about the charter about. I want to ask another, which is, do you see these conceptions of modern liberty that you rely on in your article, uh, how do they differ from the conceptions of liberty, which we have come to more closely associate with the charter? Do you, do you think we're deviating from, from the conception of modern liberty that you describe? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I think I see aspects of modern liberty, certainly in the text of the charter. Of course, the preamble of the, char- of the charter says that Canada is founded on principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Uh, yeah. That you know, the rule of law, of course, is important to modern liberals, um, and also the fundamental freedoms obviously reflect the, the core commitments of modern liberty, minus the protection of property rights. Um, but but I also see aspects of ancient liberty protected in the charter as well. You know, the right to vote. The requirement that the legislature be called on regular intervals, the right to equality, seems to me to reflect aspects of ancient liberty. Although I, I think the whole project of limiting legislative sovereignty uh, through a judicially enforced Bill of Rights is probably just completely outside of what ancient liberty is all about. Um, mm-hmm. And also in modern liberty, it, it might be tempting to see sections 1 and 33 as, as an intellectual compromise on um, on a state that's committed to protecting individual rights. Um, but but I, I don't see it that way. I think that um, there is no unbounded liberty and there is no sort of freedom in the state of nature. And it is the, the role of the legislature to specify limits of rights. And so I, I don't see them at odds. And, and in fact, because we have a legislature that is structurally designed to protect rights, I, I don't see any problem with giving the legislature that that sort of final say in section one and section thirty three on where the limits of rights should be. But I think people could probably reasonably disagree on that point for sure. but but it's interesting to note, though, regarding section one, I mean, you talk about um, the the reference to the supremacy of God and the rule of law, and there's been interesting scholarship on that area. But uh, Brian Bird, uh, a friend of Runnymede, has has made an interesting argument regarding the 
another phrase that we see in section one, this idea of the free and democratic society. And he uses that reference uh, to push back uh, on this idea about um, section one simply being uh, a limiting clause and setting this idea that this idea of um, the free and democratic society simply sets the standard by which uh, limits on rights and freedoms are to be judged. And so you can even see within that there's, there are certain normative assumptions that could be consistent with what you're describing as uh, conceptions of, of modern liberty insofar as, uh, uh, well, Brian uses uh, that phrase to make the argument that theoretically there are uh, some rights and freedoms which could be absolute. So he uses the example of uh, freedom of thought uh, mm. insofar as uh, there, there's no uh, case in a free and democratic society in which a limitation on, on freedom of thought itself could be justified. Um, so it's it's definitely, a, it's, it's a fascinating uh, topic. And it's one that I think, again, you know, we're, we're seeing is perhaps somewhat under theorized uh, in Canadian legal scholarship and just sort of, you know, perhaps the fixation that we have had more on um, on other components uh, of the charter and and more so on the the constitutionality of legislation itself, rather than understanding you know more broadly how uh, how our constitutional institutions uh, relate to one another. Very interesting. Very interesting. Let's return. Uh, as we as we wrap up this conversation, I want to again return to Henry VIII clauses um, and and bring the, we, we we've been having a very theoretical conversation and it's been a, a very much I think a rich and enjoyable one. But let's bring this down to um, to to a practical question. And so late last year, uh, the Alberta government included a Henry VIII clause in its uh, proposed Sovereignty Act, and of course the act proved to be uh, quite controversial. Uh, before it ultimately removed the Henry VIII clause from the final version of the legislation. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the decision to do so was in response to criticism that many lawyers and legal scholars had made regarding the inclusion of a Henry VIII clause. When we saw the the legislation, uh, the first version of the legislation released uh, late last year, what was your response to the inclusion of a Henry VIII clause? Yeah, um, it actually raises an interesting point that I meant to bring up earlier, which is that a Henry VIII clause never presents itself as a Henry VIII clause. And so you have to go looking for the substance uh, substance of the delegation and ask whether it whether it, it allows the executive to override primary legislation. And, and so if you look through the first draft of the Sovereignty Act, there wouldn't be you wouldn't find a clause that says, you know, sub, subtitle Henry VIII. <laughs> But yeah, there's no subheading. Yeah. But what I seem to recall is that the legis the legislature, if it passed a resolution um, basically declaring some initiative by the federal government to be contrary to Alberta's interests or contrary to the Constitution, then that would authorize the executive council to uh, enact orders in council, which may or may not um, repeal or amend primary legislation that had been enacted by the legislature of Alberta. And so in substance, that was a Henry VIII clause. Um, but it seemed to have been interestingly narrowly tailored to the specific problems that the scholarship has identified with Henry VIII clauses, because here you see 
even even though in substance the executive is overruling primary legislation in in sort of practice it can only do it with the legislature's sign off even if it's sort of a proactive sign off um and so it, it seemed to have been tailored to address as much of the sort of theoretical concerns although what i would say is that if the executive is is amending or repealing primary legislation then in my view it's unconstitutional it doesn't matter that the legislative mm-hmm. assembly has enacted um a resolution beforehand but but there's another important caveat that i have to add when we're talking about henry the eighth clauses in the provincial context which is that um the provinces actually have the power to unilaterally amend their constitutions and there's case law on what they're allowed to amend and how and so you would have to run henry the eighth clauses and you'd probably have to run the specific henry the eighth clause through the test of can you amend your provincial constitution um so that's like that's another level of analysis you would have to add on to that um to to get an answer to the question of whether it was constitutional and i don't cover that in the paper looking ahead so you know you you, you talk here about uh sort of this caveat regarding uh, provinces having this power. And so as we think about um, other potential future uses of Henry VIII clauses, do you think uh, what Alberta has done here, do, do you think it's going to open the floodgates? Do you think we'll see other provincial governments, Canada, uh, attempt to enact a Henry VIII clause? Or do you think we'll see even uh, the federal government attempt to do so again, as was uh, at issue in the carbon tax reference? So, Henry VIII clauses are awfully convenient, I think. Mm. So I, I think we may indeed see governments tempted to to use these tools. I think that they're especially convenient in a system plagued by minority parliaments, which mm-hmm. you don't tend to see at the provincial level. Um, it seems to be that at the provincial level, first past the post still secures majority governments. Um, so maybe you'll see Henry VIII clauses here and there, but I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect to see it as much as the provincial level in Ottawa. However, um, like I said earlier, we've seen minority parliaments in 2004, 2006, 2008, 2019, 2021. And I would bet that there are minority parliaments in our future. And so, Mm -hmm. you you know, and that's just talking about the house of commons. It's, you know, let alone, you know, every now and then the Senate wakes up and gives the government a few headaches. And so I, I can see the sort of allure of Henry VIII clauses in that context. But um, I, I guess time will tell. Indeed. Well, Stephen, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about this really fascinating and I think it's fair to say under-theorized component of, of Canadian, uh, not just administrative law, but obviously constitutional law, as we've been discussing. And we look forward to seeing your future writings and, and thoughts on this issue. No doubt it's one that uh, we will likely be returning to uh, at some points uh, in the future, as you've been alluding. Okay, hey, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars 
committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for updates on the exciting events that our student chapters have planned for the upcoming school year. So long for now. Thank you.